Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. As you can tell from the provocative title, we have an interesting topic today. We're in a series on uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, Sefer Mishle, the book of Proverbs. Today's part six. And we're going to look today at what has always been a key biblical virtue, but has become controversial in the way that our modern society has co-opted it, uh, this subject. I'm talking about the theme of justice. Uh, And we're going to explore biblical versus modern social justice. So turn with me to Proverbs, beginning in chapter 3, verse 17. We've got a number of verses here from Proverbs 3. Proverbs 11, 19, and 29, primarily from Proverbs chapter 3. And it's going to start with a very familiar verse for all of you, since it's our namesake, Hetzchayim. Wisdom, all her ways are pleasant, and all her paths are peace. She's a Hetzchayim, she's a tree of life to those who who embrace her, who grasp her. Uh, Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. Uh, By Chachma, by wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in their place. But then by his knowledge, the watery depths were divided uh, and the clouds let drop their dew. Don't withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to act. Don't say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow, I'll give it to you then. When you already have it with you right now. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there's shouts of joy. Through the blessings of the upright, a city is exalted, but, uh, but by the mouth of the wicked, it's destroyed. Whoever's kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they've done. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. One of the key ways the book of Proverbs says you can lead a wise life is, is if you care for justice. Look again at Proverbs 29, 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Justice for the poor is a major theme in the Bible. Indeed, where it says the righteous care for the poor, the word care here in the English is way too weak. The actual Hebrew is the verb yada, to know meaning to know intimately, uh, personally, uh, experientially. Uh, The righteous intimately know and personally and passionately care about justice for the poor. Now, five quick words, key words about this topic to to frame our whole talk today. We'll put these five on the overhead. Uh, Number one, justice Uh, is caring for the downtrodden and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. The poor, uh, the widow, the orphan, the disabled, the stranger. This is a key biblical calling for God's people. Number two, this has nothing to do with government programs or government mandates. This is talking about voluntary individual acts of righteousness and charity done freely from the heart as a way to love one's neighbor. Number three, this does not replace the gospel, but rather is an outward fruit of an inner transformation. We love others not to earn merit, 
but simply out of an overflow of a transformed new creation heart. Number four, very practical. This is also a great outreach tool to demonstrate to our secular, liberal, non-believing friends that we, true Yeshua followers, care about many of the same things that they care about. Uh, so use this when you're sharing the gospel. Number five, biblical justice, as we're going to see at length, has nothing to do with the so-called modern social justice movement, uh, which is based in atheism, Marxism, intolerance, uh, grievance politics, uh, class hatred, revenge, and the denial of God-given individual rights versus just subsuming yourself into the Borg uh, of whatever intersectional grievance group you're assigned to based solely on race, sex, sexuality, and gender. So do not confuse these two. And do not let the modern social justice counterfeit, don't, do not let it co-opt or, or dissuade you from standing up for true biblical justice. So with that background, let's look at our text today under four headings put on the overhead. Number one, why do we need justice? Number two, what is justice? Three, uh, biblical versus social justice. And number four, how can we, how can you and I be one of those who do justice? So first, why do we need justice? Uh, and to get at this, we need to understand uh, the closely aligned biblical concept of shalom, of peace. So look at Proverbs 3.17. Wisdom, all her paths are shalom, all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to all those who take hold of her, and all those who take hold of her are ashray, are blessed. Shalom and, and blessedness are, are key terms in the Bible and are much richer and much deeper concepts than their English counterparts. Notice immediately after these verses, we read this in Proverbs 3.19. By wisdom, the Lord laid, whole, laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By knowledge, he divided the deep and let the dew drop from the clouds. God created the world through his wisdom. Psalm 102 says the Lord made the earth like a garment, uh, like a fabric. Think about what is a fabric. Uh, a fabric consists of lots and lots of threads, but the threads don't just lay there. You can take 5,000 threads, lay them on the table side by side. You don't have a piece of fabric because they have to be interwoven, right? Each thread has to go under and over and around and through all the other threads, hundreds, if not thousands of times. And then and only then is the fabric, is there a fabric that, that's beautiful and strong and useful. In the same way, God did not make this world simply by throwing millions and billions of little entities into it. But rather, God made the world with all these millions and billions of entities to be beautifully, interdependently, harmoniously knit together and webbed together. And that knitting and webbing and interdependence is what the Bible calls shalom. So, for example, take your body. When you're young, you look good, you feel good, you're healthy, you've got lots of energy. Because every part of your body is properly knit to every other part. It's webbed together. It's working together in unity. Uh, it all fits together. Disease and injury and aging 
are the breaking apart of the parts of your body that ought to be together. And when you die, literally, the parts of your body fall to pieces. So when you're sick or injured or aging or dying, your physical body is losing the experience of shalom. Now, within a human, you have your physical body and you have your soul, consisting of your conscience, your emotions, uh, your, your reason. And, of course, you also have your eternal spirit. And when all the parts of you are together in harmony, you experience shalom, inner shalom, absolute flourishing, everything knit together. But when there's inner conflict, for example, you want something with your emotions, which your conscience says you shouldn't have, you start to experience a loss of shalom, uh, an unraveling of your inner peace, of your inner, of your inner fabric. Uh, and un, 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 unraveling psychologically, uh, that's analogous to physical disintegration. And you experience anxiety and inner conflict uh, and meaninglessness and anger. You're losing shalom. Now let's look at social shalom, which is part of the greater concept of justice, of tzedakah uh, in the Bible. The ideal is to be part of a faith community, part of a congregation where everybody cares about everybody else. Where if you have a need, the community would try to meet that need. And I love how this particular Messianic synagogue attempts to do just that. Uh, for example, just last week, uh, an elderly couple here uh, uh, who was housebound uh, needed firewood. And members of EC, they sprang into action uh, and it helped them out. We've had two members of this congregation in the last year whose houses burned down, two different members, uh, one whose house was virtually destroyed in a flood. An EC member sacrificially gave to help them with money, with food, with clothing, etc. When someone's moving, members of Etch Climb are, are there to help them. When someone's in the hospital, you're the first to come and visit them and pray with them. You see, we could be a congregation where everybody is a thread, right alongside everybody else, worshiping next to each other, but that doesn't mean you're interwoven. Congregations where everybody's interwoven with everybody else, socially, spiritually, physically, they spend time with each other, giving of your time, your talents, uh, your efforts uh, to help one another. That's true shalom and justice and love in action. And it's a beautiful fabric when that happens. The congregation becomes a tree of life. But if we just live for ourselves, we have the loss of social shalom. We have social breakdown, uh, loss of community, uh, loss of shalom, wholeness, uh, holistic wholeness, uh, and blessing. Uh, because this is this holistic blessing and wholeness is what God, uh, in his wisdom, made the world for and made us for. So, so the wise person seeks to promote this shalom. For example, the wise person tells the truth because when you lie, you're unraveling the social fabric. You're exploiting or deceiving or taking advantage of others. Uh, by, you're withholding from them what they need to flourish. But when you tell the truth, you're weaving the social fabric together. A wise man, a wise woman is also generous with their money. You don't spend all your money on yourself. You spend 10% or 15% or 20% on other people, such as through uh, giving to the EC Mercy Fund, where it's distributed to those in need. And when you have a whole community doing that, there's an interwovenness of people where the congregation is being threaded together into a strong social and spiritual fabric. 
And conversely, lying uh, and stinginess, they're not just immoral, but they're foolish because you're destroying the very fabric of the world in which you live. And justice includes weaving that fabric back together where, where it's unraveled. That biblically is a key part of what doing justice is. We need justice because the world was built for shalom, but our world is unraveling everywhere. And the work of biblical justice is to go spiritually, physically, psychologically, socially, materially, to go into helping the lives of those whose lives are unraveling, to volunteer your time, your resources, your talents to help them. Now, a lot of the secular people we're trying to reach with the gospel, they say, I don't know if I believe in God, but I believe in justice. But if there is no God, if God didn't create the world in interwovenness and for shalom, if this world is just the product of random accidental forces, then there's no such thing as justice. There's no basis for justice. So when you're sharing the gospel with the secular person, ask them, if this world is just an accident and wasn't made for a purpose, then how can you talk about the way the world ought to be? How do you know how it ought to be? If this world is just here by accident, uh, that's just, here's just how life goes. The strong eat the weak. That's natural selection. Survival of the fittest. Darwinian evolution. Strong organisms eat the weak organisms. So then what could possibly be wrong with strong people oppressing weak people? Or strong nations trampling on weak nations? Well, the secular person says, that's unjust. Okay, why? They're ultimately saying that nature itself is crooked. That something's wrong with nature. But if nature is all there is, how can you possibly know something's wrong with it? What are you judging it by? Someone who understood this very well was Dr. Martin Luther King. When, he, when Dr. Martin Luther King was put in jail in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 for nonviolent resistance against segregation, a number of white ministers in town criticized him for disobeying the local laws and ordinances. And Dr. King wrote a response, put on the overhead here, in his now famous letter from the Birmingham jail, where he writes this. You ask... How can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact there are two types of laws, just and unjust. Now, how does one determine? How do you determine if a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the natural moral law of God. An unjust law is a law that's out of harmony with the moral law of God. It's not rooted in the eternal divine and natural law. Dr. Martin Luther King, he's saying, if nature is all there is, then the only way you can know if something's wrong with nature is if there is a supernatural law, that there's God's law. If God made the world and he designed it in a certain way for shalom, and you see it unraveling, then you can say, this is not the way it ought to be. Uh, this is wrong. This is unjust. But if this world is all there is, and there is no God, then justice is just a matter of your opinion. Uh, it's just the, the way the world is. There's no way that it, quote, ought to be. So you have no basis for saying something is just or unjust. It's just a matter of your opinion. So why should you try to impose it on, on others? Nietzsche says this. 
If there's no God, then there's nothing wrong with grabbing power over others. And the people in this world who protest against power plays are themselves simply trying to get power over the people that currently have more power than them. And they're doing it through uh, their protests. Thus, he says, all moral outrage over power plays are themselves nothing but power plays. Because if there is no God, there's only power. There's no justice. If the world was not created in wisdom, then there's no such thing as justice. Justice only exists in relation to God's law. On the overhead, this brings us to our second point. What is justice? Proverbs 3, we're told God made the world for shalom. Uh, and then in applying this truth, we're told this in Proverbs 3:27. Don't withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to act. Don't say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow when you have it with you now. Don't withhold good from your neighbor. Money, tools, time, resources, expertise. To help out your neighbor in need. If someone in our congregation is elderly or disabled or sick uh, and they can't clean their own house or mow their own yard, help them out. Serve them. Help meet their needs. Love in action. Weave your life together in with theirs. Build covenant community. Doing justice, once you understand that this concept of shalom isn't just going to court to, to right or wrong, but doing justice is much, much more than that, according to the scriptures. It's a much broader and more comprehensive concept. So you're called not just to be a thread next to other threads, but when you see others in your community falling out of the fabric due to lack of resources or lack of access, for you to get involved in their lives and thread yourselves with them and help weave them back into the social fabric. Now, by nature, let's be honest, we don't want to be involved. Uh, we're busy. Uh, it's inconvenient. But that's what part of doing justice entails. Don't withhold good from your neighbor when it's within your power to act. Proverbs 11, verse 10. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked person, well, when the wicked perish, there's shouts of joy uh, on the overhead. Why? Because, because biblically, the Zedekim, the righteous, are those who sacrifice their own interests for the sake of the community, of the congregation. While the Rashim, the, the wicked, are those who sacrifice the good of the community, the good of the congregation, for the sake of their own interests. We're called to be the Zedekim, the righteous ones, to be a blessing to the community. This brings us to point number three on the overhead, where there's much confusion today over the nature of justice, because a new secular concept of justice has now arisen, rooted in, in Marxist theory, known as social justice, which is a counterfeit of real justice, and especially of true biblical justice. Because according to the Bible, we're children of God, fashioned in his image. But according to social justice, which is, again, the self-avowed neo-Marxist movement, we're, we're just children of society, not children of God. And we're fashioned by social constructs and power dynamics where everyone is either part of the oppressor privilege class or the oppressed uh, victim class based solely on your race, sex, sexual preference, and, and gender identity. You're judged based solely on your class and your sta class status Whereas the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. 
And, and, and the same law should apply to both the rich and the poor, the scriptures say. Without distinction. And that in Messiah, there's no longer any Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. But we're one in Messiah. According to the social justice theory, if you're in, in the oppressor of the privileged class, if you're, for example, a white male heterosexual, it has nothing to do with your actual circumstances or your behavior, but just these outward characteristics. The exact opposite of Dr. Martin Luther King's standard, where we're not, not to be judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. And in social justice theory, there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness, there's no mercy, there's no grace. There's just power and revolution and destruction. Because the goal is to tear down the system. The social justice movement has severed the idea of justice from God and his law. Uh, and invented their own definitions, whole new definitions. Uh, thus we now have things like climate justice, environmental justice. These are buzzwords used to promote this radical agenda. Well, the Hollywood elite can fly their private jets, of course, <laughs> and China can burn all the coal it wants. But, but we become hostage uh, to Russia and Iraq and Venezuela for oil. And then there's reproductive justice, another new buzzword. Reproductive justice means a woman has an unfettered right to murder her unborn baby, even up to the point of birth, if not beyond. LBGTQ justice means we can sexualize and groom your children. Trans justice means we can mutilate their bodies. Do you see how the word justice has been hijacked? Similarly, uh, equity is this new term. Equity is actually, is, it does not mean equal opportunity. It's actually the opposite. Now, now it means an enforced outcome. Uh, and diversity and inclusion is only for approved groups uh, and, 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 it, and, it, and uh, approved opinions. There's no diversity or inclusion if you want Judeo-Christian standards. Those are excluded. And the overhead. Here are some key characteristics of modern social justice. Number one, obsession with power, oppression, and victimization. It sees the world divided between the, the oppressors uh, and the, the evil oppressors and the innocent victims. Uh, in the, in the, and it seeks to incite class warfare in a zero-sum power struggle. Number two, the ends justify the means which means we can have any kind of ruthless, immoral, violent tactics we want, modeled after Mao's cultural revolution. Number three, a fixation on class, race, gender, and sexual orientation as solely defining who you are, your personal identity. Uh, you aren't a unique individual created in God's image. No, you're merely a member of your group or your class and nothing more. Number four, Open hostility towards Judeo-Christian values, especially concerning family and sexuality. Number five, opposition to the natural family, the nuclear family, and especially the authority of parents over children and any kind of male headship or covering. Number six, fixation of redistributing wealth and power by an ever-increasing state uh, with ever more totalitarian powers. Now, here are some key contrasts between social justice and biblical justice on the, on the overhead. So number one, who are we? Social justice says we're creatures of, of evolution whose identity is wholly determined by society. We're merely products of our race, our sex, our sexual preference, our gender identity. Whereas the Bible says we're created as unique individuals in the image of a good, holy, and loving God. And we thus have inherent dignity and worth. Number two, uh, what's man's main problem? 
social justice, a man's main problem is oppression by white straight males against women, people of color, sexual minorities, and transgender people. The biblical worldview is man's main problem is rebellion of all of us against God. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. This results in broken relationships between God and man, between man and his fellow man, between man and creation. Number three, okay, what's the solution? Social justice says the solution is revolution. The oppressed groups and their allies must unite to unmask, cancel, deconstruct, and overthrow the oppressors and all their structures and systems and institutions. The Bible says the solution is the gospel. That on the cross, God incarnate bore the punishment that we deserve for our sinful rebellion in order to show us mercy that we could never deserve on our own. Now, next one, how can we be saved? Number four, social justice says the victim classes are automatically deemed morally innocent and therefore do not require any salvation. The oppressors, on the other hand, can never be fully pardoned. Partial, quote-unquote, salvation is available for members of the oppressor class only if they confess their complicity in the oppression uh, and support the revolution. This is model after Mao's re-education camps. The biblical worldview says if you confess with your mouth, Yeshua is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Who has the ultimate authority? Number five. Social justice says the victim classes are the final authority. The claims of victims based on their subjective experiences, including their claims of being offended or feeling unsafe, must be believed without question. The biblical worldview says God and his revealed word in the scriptures is the final authority. And then finally, number six, is there a future final judgment? Social justice says no. Uh, there is no God. There is no final judgment uh, where the wicked are punished and, and the uh, upright are rewarded. And therefore, we, the oppressed, must take justice into our own hands. The Bible says, yes, there is. Yeshua will return and accomplish perfect justice. Until then, he holds out forgiveness uh, and mercy and redemption to those who turn to him. The Bible asserts we are creations of a good and holy and loving God. And that we all, both male and female, are made in his image. As such, all people have a common human nature and intrinsic dignity and worth and immutable rights to life and liberty. Modern social justice, in contrast, views human beings as creatures whose identity is determined solely by group affiliations uh, based on race, sex, sexual preference, and gender identity. There's no shared human nature, and there's no such thing as the individual. Rather, our identity is fully and totally socially constructed. Thus, for example, individuals are little more than mouthpieces for, the gr for groups, again, based on race, sex, sexual preference, and gender. So you're reduced to merely being an avatar, an embodiment uh, of your group interests. And you're not allowed to have any opinions that are opposed to your group. For example, for an LGBTQ person, his or her sexuality is viewed as their core identity. It's who they are. So if you have a biblical view opposing homosexual activity, uh, in their view, that's to deny who they are. And thus for you, there is no forgiveness. There's probably no more radical view than this denial of the individual. All you are and all you're allowed to be is your group identity. 
That's you, your personal history, uh, your life experiences, your choices, your deeply held beliefs. They don't matter. The only thing that matters is your group identity. Individual freedom and responsibility and accountability are all denied. By contrast, the Bible affirms the importance of each individual. All lives matter. God raises up individuals such as Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Esther, David, Yeshua, Peter, uh, in the modern era, William Wilberforce, uh, John Newton, you and me. He raises us up to change the course of history. Our choices matter. God holds us individually accountable for our beliefs and for our actions. At the final judgment, you will not be excused because you are members of a so-called victim group. As image bearers of God, you have moral agency and responsibility and accountability. Modern social justice denies all of this. It just destroys our shared humanity. No longer can we anticipate, as did Martin Luther King Jr., that all God's children will join hands and sing in unity. The biblical worldview denies that we can be reduced to just a group identity. The groups we belong to, yes, they may somewhat help shape us, but they do not define us. The bedrock of our human identity is found in our common creation in God's image uh, and in Yeshua's open door to redemption. We are all rebels, but Yeshua has opened a way for you and I and all of us to be saved. When a relationship with God is restored through faith in the Messiah, we regain our true identity, one that transcends any secular or physical group identity. Galatians 3, 26. For in Messiah Yeshua, you're all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you're all one in Messiah Yeshua. In contrast, modern social justice says it can only divide us because it has no basis for unity. It can only segregate into competing tribes, pitted against each other in this endless power struggle in a Hobbesian zero-sum game where for one to win, the other must lose. And who are the wicked, according to social justice? Political conservatives, religious, especially religious conservatives, who uphold male-female traditional uh, marriage uh, and the natural family. Social justice destroys civil, humane society, replacing it with hatred, division, and tribalism. In contrast, the Bible says we're all in our natural state. We're all wicked because we're all in rebellion against God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Romans 1.21, for though we knew, mankind knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But, they're fut- but be- they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The scriptures are clear. Our fundamental problem is not oppressive social structures. Our problem is all of us. Our foolish hearts are darkened. And the overhead, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the line separating good from evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. So in the midst of a world where biblical justice is no longer sought, but where a woke, uh, Marxist, atheist, satanic counterfeit is now the norm, 
This brings us to our fourth and final point on the overhead. How can we be those who pursue and do biblical justice? And more importantly, how can we be one of those, how can we become one of the just from the inside through our inner heart transformation? How can we do that? Proverbs 19, 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he'll reward him for what he's done. Do you know that banks, especially big corporate banks, still tend to redline lower income communities? Contrary to this proverb, they don't lend to the poor. Now, it's technically illegal to redline specific communities, but these banks do it anyways. Banks redline lower-income communities. Why? Because they know if someone there from, from there asks for a loan, they're more likely not to pay it back and, and to default. So if you live in a poor community, it's very hard to get a loan. Here's what God is saying to us today. Do not redline anyone. Do not write them off. Do not refuse to reach out to them. Even if in the natural, uh, they're your enemy. Look how the Lord transformed Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. Yeshua says, don't redline anyone. Because a gift to the poor, I see as a gift to me. And I'll make the loan good. When you give to the broken, when you give to the poor, when you give to the messed up, when you give to the widow and the orphan and the, and the single mom uh, and the destitute and the powerless, the Lord says, you're giving to me and I will make the loan good. The Lord says, I'm no one's debtor. No one has ever given more to me than I've given back to them. On the overhead, there's even a deeper principle here. God, you have the overhead. Okay, you're right. That's correct. God identifies. Here's the more deeper principle. Thank you. God identifies with the poor. He says, if you lend to the poor, you're lending to me. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 31. He says, if you insult the poor, you insult me. If you honor the poor, you honor me. God identifies with the poor. Most vivid example of this in all the scriptures is in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says, on judge, it says on judgment day, God will sit on his throne and we will all stand before him. And to some, he'll say this in Matthew 25, 42. He says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Matthew 25, 44, they'll reply, Lord, why did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and it didn't help you? We've never seen you before in our life. When did this ever happen? Verse 45, truly I tell you, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Yeshua says, I was in those people. And you just walked on by. On the overhead. <laughs> now, Yeshua is not saying the way you get a relationship with God is by helping the poor. Rather, he's saying the way you can tell if you have a relationship with God is by your attitude toward the poor. 
You see, if you're a Pharisee and you say, I lived a pretty good life, God owes me. In other words, if you're not poor in spirit, but rather you're, you're middle class in spirit, <laughs> you're going to look down on the poor. <laughs> but if you're poor in spirit, if you know that God did not redline you, if you know that even though you didn't qualify for the loan, God invested in you anyways, and you're saved by grace, if you're poor in spirit, you cannot look down upon the poor with any kind of superiority because you know you're looking in a mirror. And therefore, what God is saying is this, I identify with the poor. I am the poor man on the doorstep. I am the homeless woman on the street corner. I'm the prisoner who's been arrested for protesting abortion. I'm naked. I'm the naked one. I'm thirsty. Uh, and the way you know you get, you, you've got a relationship with me, a real saving relationship with me, is by how you relate to them. That's what Matthew 25 is saying. The Hebrew scriptures say that God identifies with the poor. But it's not only, but, it, but, but that's what the Hebrew scriptures say, but it's only in the new covenant scriptures that we discover the de actual degree to which God has done this. When God came to earth in Yeshua, he came as a poor man. He was born in a manger. He was when, he, when he was circumcised on the eighth day, his parents brought the offering for the lowest of the low, for the poorest of the poor, uh, two pigeons, not a bull, uh, not, not, two go not a goat, two pigeons. During his ministry, he was homeless. When he died, the only possessions he had were the clothes on his back, and they divided it and cast lots for it. He spent his last night in a borrowed upper room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But Yeshua, he did not just identify with the poor. He identified himself especially with the oppressed. Pastor James Boyce uh, preached a sermon a number of years ago called uh, The Illegalities of Yeshua's Trial. And he pointed out, out all these, every part of his, that every part of his trials were illegal under both Roman and Jewish law. His arrest was illegal. The interrogation was illegal. Uh, the trial was illegal. It was held at night against Jewish law. Uh, there was no, no, notific no uh, notification. He wasn't allowed any defense. He was slapped and struck in the middle of his trial. Everything about his trial was unjust. Do you know what that means? A lot of secular people say, I can't believe in a God when I see so much injustice in the world. But Yeshua the Messiah, God incarnate, came to earth and he knows what it's like to be under the lash. He knows what it's like to stand against corrupt governmental and religious institutions and to be killed for it. He knows what it's like to be the victim of injustice. He knows what it's like to be lynched. Many say it's hard to believe in a God who's never experienced injustice in the world. In a world filled with, in a world filled with injustice. But our faith, Yeshua faith, is the only religion that even claims that God has been subject to injustice. And where do you really see the Lord of heaven naked, thirsty, a prisoner? When you see him on the final day, do not say, when did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you a prisoner? 
Because the answer is on the cross. When you see Yeshua on the cross, taking the place of the poor, taking the place of the oppressed and the victims of injustice, when you see him doing it for you, when you see him saying, I deserve justice, but I got condemnation, so that you who deserve condemnation could get justice without it destroying you, to the degree you take that into the center of your life, that will make you into a zadik, a righteous one. If you see Yeshua thirsty and hungry and a prisoner, if you see him identifying with the poor in his death for you, taking the condemnation, even though he deserved justice, so that we who deserve condemnation could get justice without it destroying us, to the degree you can take that into your heart, it'll turn you into one of the Zedekim, the righteous ones, and make you an ambassador of God's shalom. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do not neglect it. Seek Yeshua today, the bringer of true justice and righteousness. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Like, Bob Rifka, to please come back up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you for your word today. And the importance of justice, biblical justice, especially for the downtrodden and the powerless, the, the poor, the disabled, the widow, the stranger, the orphan. Lord, this is your heart. It's vividly portrayed in this parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Or to the extent we extend food and water and clothing and housing and visitation and care for even one of the least of these, we do it unto you, Yeshua. Lord, may our new creation heart overflow with your love, love and action. Yeshua, help us to see the importance and the priority uh, as your children for us to bring shalom to this earth within our own spheres of influence as we walk in your ways. Not to earn your love, but as an expression of your love that you have already shed abroad in our hearts. Zedek, Zedek, Tirdof. Help us, Lord, to pursue righteousness and justice based on your word. Not to be seduced or, or co-opted or cowed into silence by this modern satanic counterfeit that the whole world calls social justice. Unlike modern social justice, Lord, help us to reach each person, to see each person as a precious individual made in your image, and not merely members of some special interest group or, or victim or grievance group. Help us to judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And we thank you, Yeshua, for taking on yourself the world's oppression, the world's injustice, and suffering on our behalf on the tree that we might receive your mercy and grace and salvation. And we pray this in your name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.